Okay, welcome to the Carousel Podcast. We have with us today Dan Baltic, author of Nutcranker, a novel released yesterday, November 11th, Veterans Day, from Terror House Press. Dan is a uh, tweeter of notes in our sphere. Um, what's your Twitter handle? So it is Baltic underscore Dan. Baltic underscore Dan. And uh, he and I have quite a bit in common, which is what we'll start with. Um, we'll talk a little bit about propaganda, both in terms of whether art can be propaganda. We'll talk about satire because the book is a satire. Um, and we'll talk about marketing the book itself, et cetera, et cetera. So um, we're, we're basically here because you're on your PR tour. <laughs> More Very much so. Uh, which is great. I mean, it's great that you've organized such a thing. And I think, I think you do a really good job of... Um, you know, we all need to show, right? But showing respectfully. And you're also a guy who really is a, a big supporting beam in our scene. So oh, thank you, man. Uh, I, I, I think you're, you're just great energy all around. But you, let's dude. talk first, um, before we talk about the book, let's just talk about who you are and who we are. Um, so you and I have quite a bit in common, actually. Uh, you have yes, a background, do. a little bit, uh, somewhat of a background in, in public affairs, but then you became a lawyer. Um, you found your, I, I'm also a lawyer who defected. Um, <laughs> you also, I, I believe kind of, do, did you start off on the other side? Were you, were you raised kind of more secular left mainstream? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I was raised essentially without religion. Um, uh, as we'll get into a little bit more, uh, perhaps to, uh, some surprise of my listeners or maybe not. My mother is Jewish. My father is Catholic. I was really raised with neither. We went to a Unitarian church for a little while, and that was kind of goofy. We stopped that. And um, yeah, I mean, it's something that like I, I love the upbringing that I had. I love my parents. But um, yeah, I, in retrospect, do wish I had some more uh, more religion, good old religion in my life, which I perhaps that. I will raise my children with when I have them. So you're not going to go back to Unitarianism? Mm. Even then, even then, when I was like 11 or 12, I was like in the church, I guess, I guess it's a church. And I was thinking, these people are too effing cringe. This is like, this is fake and gay. <laughs> and this is, this is like as a 12 year old in like 1998. And I, I could smell it, suss it out even then. Yeah, right, right. Um, so you could go either into Judaism or you could go Catholic or you could do the thing that all the real cool kids are doing, which is Eastern Orthodox. Have you, That's have right. you made your choice? Uh, you know, I have not chosen my fighter yet. Mm. Uh, I mean, to be honest, like I I do believe in God. I, I do. I'm, And this is an interesting thing because I think it's the type of thing where you either and even if you're religious, you don't necessarily believe in God, I think. And it just it comes down to a very personal thing. Like, you know, if you ask someone and you say, OK, stop thinking about everything. Is there a God or isn't there? Gut level, yes or no. And for most of my life, I would say no. At this point in my life, I would say yes. And so I, I do believe that there is a, a God that is, you know, um, omniscient and, you know, powerful uh I, I don't know exactly what he or 
not, not know exactly what he looks he looks like uh but you know i yeah regardless um so in, in terms of like am i going to pursue a faith right now at this moment i um i don't feel a strong inclination to i'm kind of like happy where i am but when i do have children which i'm planning to have um I uh, got it. Well, no, my, my girlfriend's on the same, you know, she understands <laughs> she, she's on board with that too. We, we're not there yet, but um, yeah, I would want to raise them with religion. So at that point I would have to make a choice. About You'd have to how decide something. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I'm actually going through that right now. Um, I very similar background to you. Uh, I was raised with zero religion, actually. And yeah, a couple like, yeah, I think we went to a couple like Baha'i ceremony or like a Quaker thing once, but uh, Jewish yeah. mother. Uh, I was raised around a lot of other Jew, like, you know, Jewish people. My father's not Jewish at all. Um, he's wasp. And I, you know, really rejected re the reform Judaism that I was around and, you know, yeah. really came to despise it. Um, and then a similar thing, like I had a baby and I started, you know, I think you just reached that age in your late thirties and I kind of shopped around a little bit. And then I went to a Chabad, like Hasidic, Hasidic wedding. And um, I was like, oh, this is dope. Like, and I okay. also, there was something about Judaism that just like, I mean, I'm much more of like a non-Jew in my like soul in a way, but something about the religion, when you get into the Talmudic Kabbalistic teachings, yeah. it was like immediately like, okay, this is like, obviously like speaks to me very directly. Whereas, um, I mean, the New Testament's actually great. It's very cool. But, and the New Testament's like, a lot more like Taoist than the Old Testament. Like people will hate me saying that, but it's a lot like more. Um, it reads a lot more like it, it hits you more like a self help book, you know. Yeah. Whereas no, the Torah, true. the Torah is like a story. You know, the Torah is yeah. not really. It doesn't really like tell you what to do that much. You know. Okay. I mean, my kind yeah. of conception of the Torah is more that it's like uh it actually does tell you what to do that it's more like an instruction manual like well if, uh, so but the instruction actually comes after the torah like like the the instruction okay, in, comes in the from the interpret yeah it, it comes from the interpretation of the torah more so than I see. you know like like following jesus's exact like message you know? yeah yeah um, i see Anyway, I look, I probably sound like a complete fucking charlatan to people who are actually religious scholars out there. I'm just getting into this. Uh, I, you know, I've been meeting with a rabbi every week. Anyway, nice, uh, nice. you know, I think both of us, what the point is, what we both share in common is we've, uh, you know, we didn't get the 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 invite to the Protocols of Zion. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm, <laughs> not, got, I'm not on the list, I guess. Uh, yeah, we got excluded from the uh, Jewish global conspiracy. So we <laughs> sort of uh, defected. Um, and we both, when did you, so what I'm interested in is I started writing in, um, law school for real like that's when i really i'd always written um i always got really good grades i got the a star in legal writing uh okay. but so i always wrote and i'd always do it on the side but my genesis to being a writer was i worked in vietnam as a 
lawyer my 1-0 summer. Okay. And I was completely alone out there getting completely fucked up on ecstasy every single oh, like, sure. oh yeah all yeah. the time and i was yeah. just so like lonely that okay. i i was living in a hotel and uh i I'm just thinking like apocalypse now yeah, <laughs> 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 yeah, basically, yeah. and except yeah uh and i just it just like came out like literally it was just like i would just be i'd feel so terrible in the morning I would go yeah. down to like the little breakfast area and I would just, it just, I just started writing. Like it just started like flowing out and I would just email my friends, these terrible, like, you know, almost like pickup artists, like, uh, you know, type yeah. of what I was doing. So how did you start writing? So interestingly enough, I mean, if, when I say when I started writing, that is actually a, a very uh, long story. I mean, I, I was writing from like 10 years old. I was oh, writing cool. short stories for my class and what have you. And like, like we had to, like I was in the, the gifted program. And so in like fourth grade, we made little children's books. And my book was like some parody of the X-Files, which the teacher didn't like. She's like, what the fuck is this? You're supposed to write about like good boy stuff. And I'm like, well, I'm not a good boy. Bitch. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so no, I, I've been writing like, forever but um yeah in uh, undergrad i majored in english and creative writing uh wrote some fiction wrote a novella which actually was decent i'd like to see return to it see about maybe getting it published i don't know but it was pretty good uh but at that point i kind of i started work and i kind of put down the fiction thing for um this was the uh, late 2000s, like I graduated in 2008, I started a comedy video production company. So produced like, like you have to understand, like people who are listening to this today, they like comedy videos, but that was big in like 2008. There were like comedy videos all around the internet, like comedy rap songs. And so like I was producing those just for fun, for shits and giggles with my friends. Some of them blew up, some of them were pretty big. And so that was fun writing scripts and and from that, I kind of got into playwriting, but uh, what really brought me back to fiction, and I think this is a topic that we'll hit on, is um, I realized that the I've, I've written plays that are you know not um, sufficiently uh, progressive or woke to get produced, and I've you know I've had this told to me by directors. They're just like, I like this, but I can't possibly direct it because I'll get in trouble. And so it's the type of thing where like, well, if I continue to write plays that no one stages, this is just lame. I, a writer needs an audience. So I returned to fiction because in fiction, and I actually, this was like around 2019, 2020, I realized that um, there are guys like Delicious Tacos. I don't think uh, uh, BAM, Bronze Age Mindset was out in 2019. Maybe it was, uh, I, I'm not sure. But um, yeah, it, it probably was. And uh, so, yeah, I, I, know, I knew that self-publishing was becoming a thing. And so at that point, I, um, I remember, and to your point about travel, I remember I was visiting my friend in Hong Kong and there's something about just being yeah. in another city, another totally. whatever, yeah, where I just yeah. sat down and I started writing and I started writing the germ of what would be Nutcranker in Hong Kong. Wow. Came back home. Uh, this was in like the summer of 2019. 
refined it a little bit in an after work writing class, which, you know, my nutcranker was, they, they like, you have to understand in New, York, in New York city in these big urban areas, they have after work writing classes for uh, essentially like lawyers and professionals who want to write <laughs> and want to like scratch that itch. And so I'm there with like, you have to understand that anyone who shows up to this, a, a creatively minded you know, professional, uh, prof member of the professional middle class is going to be progressive or liberal yeah. at, at the very least. So like some of them liked it, but I remember this was Nutcranker. I, I started it in 2019 in Hong Kong. I refined it into like a short story. Uh, and then, so I sat down with the, the class and uh, they generally enjoyed it. But one woman said to me, look, you're a good writer. Why would you write something like this? And that's kind of like the, uh, I'm just like, well, because I wanted to write it. I, that's why I wrote it. And but, but that kind of underscored the like, you know, the uh, headwinds that I would face getting this published. So yeah, I eventually, you know, during mostly during the COVID downturn, because my industry was significantly affected. I had a lot more free time. So in three or four months, I wrote Nutcranker. I, I cranked it out in three or four months. And, um, you know, I started to shop it around and um, no bites, you know, no bites from the mainstream uh, media, uh, the mainstream publishing industry, uh, because, you know, I think they, you know, sensed that a kind of like a parody of a uh, alt-right edgelord type that's just not gonna like even if it's a parody they i think correctly surmised that i would be sympathetic to the main character and i am and uh they they didn't want to go near that so or they uh, didn't i mean or they didn't read it at all you or know they didn't I mean? read it's it like, at all. I, I think that's much more likely i i tell everybody um so this is another thing we have in common. I also, of course, like all of us, had my moment of trying to crack into the mainstream. And so I, <clears throat> a few years ago, um, my dad was in Italy and he has this, you know, he has this crappy apartment on the north side of Chicago. And I, I just, uh, I didn't have a baby yet. I wasn't married yet. So I just left and went there for two months and just wrote short stories, which one of which you read. And I tried good, to get yeah. that short story, which is called The Flakes. And I had another one. I like, you know, tried to submit it to all the, the journals and everything. And I during that time, I, to understand the industry, I read a book called uh, The Insider's Guide to Publishing by David Comfort, which mm -hmm. I would highly recommend anybody read. And he breaks down the numbers of the publishing industry. And it's like, what I realize is 99% of stuff that is submitted isn't even read. They, they, <laughs> they, don't even, they don't even read it. So a big part of the reason why identity has become the, the key is because that's how they even know how to read anything. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you have to have the right identity in order for them to even read the thing you've sent them. So I would guess that probably your thing didn't even get read, even though it completely deserves to be published in the mainstream because it is, you know, I should say it's an extraordinary book. It's really good. Uh, thank you, I, it has so much to say. It's a very um, easy to read and not in a bad way. It's just like it's fun to read. 
So I think it would sell well. And it is about this topic that everyone wants to read about. Last night, we went, my wife and I went to Tar, this movie with Kate Blanchett. Oh, yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. And it's kind of about cancel culture-ish. Okay. The theater was packed. It was like sold out on, on a Friday night. And this is like, it's been out for a few weeks. Like, when's the last time you've seen an art movie sold out? You know what I mean? Like it was, yeah, it, no. it's because people want to, this is the topic that is on people's minds. They want to read about cancel culture. They want to read the perspective of somebody like Spencer Grunhauer, who is your main character. So it's a fucking travesty that the mainstream literary world overlooked something like you, because this is exactly what they should be publishing. And they, if they, you know, were worth their, if they weren't, you know, global Marxists, as, as Spencer would say, <laughs> uh, they would publish it. Um, so let me ask this. It seems like you have a lot of overlap with Kevin Kautzman, who's another playwright in our scene who does Art of Dark podcasts, which you've been on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Love Kevin. Yeah, Kevin's the man. He's really cool. Um, was it always called Nutcranker? Yes, it was always called Nutcranker because the, um, the short story that it's based on, the scene in Nutcranker where he goes to the Nutcranker offices to demand his account is, is reinstated. That was the first scene in the novel, actually. Uh, so it was, yeah, it yeah. That's where it was like, what if this guy is like driven to St. Elliot land by having his porn account canceled? And so that was where it began. And so I, I fleshed it out from there, but like I had found Spencer's voice. And so, yeah, so from the very beginning, I construed uh, this um, this porn aggregation website called Nutcranker, and I knew that, like, yes, the title of this short story would be Nutcranker, and certainly the title of the book, and it's just a fun name. Like, Nutcranker, like, I've been tweeting this all week. It lends itself to all sorts of jokes, like... Um, you know, there, there was like, like you, you even posted that the Amazon link wasn't working. And I think I tweeted something like Bezos is scared of the nut <laughs> something like that. There's just like, or like it's today it's, it's on sale. Get your nut today. It's yeah. like, it's just, yeah, it's great. Or like, I just, you know, for instance, there's a reading tonight, Terror House Press, my publisher has yes. a reading in New York right. city. Everyone should show up for contact me on twitter well, this isn't gonna to... come out this isn't gonna come out before, oh, yeah. so. <laughs> okay. fair, fair enough well you know if you're one of the i mean it could i could who... publish this today i mean why not i i totally could just put it out if you want me to i will i don't think it'll send eh, maybe it... all right maybe i should do that I mean... maybe i should rush it out I mean, I don't think there will be a lack of people. I get the impression that there's like, and this is something we could talk about. There is such a hunger for these type of events that like I have people, yeah, I have people reaching out to me being like, where is this event? Can you tell me about more events? Can you like, like my girlfriend's um, friends, they want to come to this stuff just because it's just like, it's cool. It's like, uh, you know, if you're in your like late 20s, I'm not in my mid 30s, dating a younger woman. (laughs) And uh, but uh, if you're in your late 20s and you want to be where the cool kids are, they're not at like, you know, book release parties for Simon and Schuster's like how to tell jokes to piss off your boyfriend. No, they're they're at parties for like, you know, 
how to tell jokes to get fired at your job yeah. like like uh so, like parties hosted by matt forney <laughs> yeah so this this is being put on by matt forney former guest of this show um who, so, who i will just jump in i was already cut you off guys i can just say that matt um he believed in this he published nutcranker he committed to publish it before i'm also the co-host of new right we uh we're you know pretty big this you you've been on new right yeah. multiple times isaac we've had on zero hp we've had on i uh, know delicious tacos we've had on just like we were ironic nationalist a number of like luminaries in our sphere but that was all after matt agreed to publish nutcranker matt agreed to publish nutcranker when i had very few followers new right was barely a thing and the amount of like this guy has a day job the amount of work that this guy put into getting nutcranker out there and getting at all of his authors out there is just you know frankly incredible yeah, and i think yeah i think in time in you know if you know if things go as I hope they do in the next 10 or 15 years, people will look back and see like who held the, uh, the flame of literature and kept it burning. Um, I, I think actually Matt Forney is, you know, one of the guys who like really, you know, kept good art. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. Very canceled public enemy, Matt Forney. Matt Forney is one of these guys that you Google and the first like three results are Southern Poverty Law Center. They have, <laughs> they have their lists and he's like on their list as misogynist. And, you know, they clip out a bunch of these like single lines that he said, you know, when he was yeah. 23, you know, like some fat 23 year old incel, you know, like like angrily yeah. on the Internet. And now he's like public enemy of of a Southern Poverty Law Center. But, yeah, no, he's he's uh, got a great hero arc he really has come around and uh he's matured a lot and you know he really is giving his whole heart and soul into terror house and the, you know the uh dragon day which yes your by matt pegas matt pegas uh has an written, excellent book everyone should buy yeah which i've read and i went on your guys's podcast to talk about um yeah it, it's uh I should have mentioned New Right in the beginning. New Right is great. New Right is is your oh, podcast you with Matt yeah. Pegas. And it's really like, for me, one of the few podcasts I just listen to every time it comes out because you have great oh, guests. Thank you. And really, yeah, it's, yeah. what I always say is it's very listenable. It's like, it's a, just a very listenable, like you have a lot of curiosity about the guests. Um, yeah, yeah. Who do you have coming out on that? So actually, our next episode is none other than Kevin Kautzman. Oh, he nice. is the episode that's dropping. Should have dropped this week, but uh, we, we already did the episode. It's been a crazy week at work. Nutcranker came out. Sorry, Kevin. It's coming out next <laughs> week. But uh, yeah, after we are packed from now until the holidays with great guests. We have Bennett's Phylactery is coming up. We have the return of Raw Egg Nationalist. We have Matt Thrax, who's one of the uh, the editors at Apcon Mag. Oh, boo, uh, boo. <laughs> Which uh, I know boo, Isaac, has feelings, <laughs> <laughs> Isaac has feelings about. Uh, but uh, also um, uh, Phoebe Near, the uh, the DeVere girl, the, oh, the yeah. girl who uh, organized the DeVere ball. She will be on and uh, she has become a... Uh, a kind of literary socialite and she's recently produced and directed starred and produced in a movie 
that uh, premiered in Williamsburg recently. I've heard great things about it. So we're excited to have her on. And uh, yeah, this this whole year, we uh, we are working straight until the holidays at New Right. That's great, man. Do you have a, what is like the cadence of release? Or do you guys try and do every week or is it every other week? Like, what, how do you- I mean, to- like, I would say we try and do every other week every other because week. we want to have a break. But the problem is so many people <laughs> come on yeah. it just winds up being every week because you don't want to say, you don't want to say no when some big name is like, yeah. I want to come on. It's like, well, okay, sure. I wanted to have a weekend off. I am a lawyer. I like trying to have a relationship here and, you know, show my novel. But yeah, you, sometimes you just, you don't want to say no. Well, so, the work is you got to actually read the stuff, you know, you yeah. got to read the stuff before you that's what's tough like i'm having um uh i have an upcoming record with tr hudson oh nice we love tr yeah and uh it's like i got his book but it's like i haven't even started i have to like read yeah yeah a week um let me just say something about apocalypse magazine (laughs) so i know what everybody's fucking thinking here everybody's thinking that I'm pissed that they didn't accept my fucking story, which is not the fucking case. I swear to fucking God. I look, I am not a literature writer. I don't do that right now. You know, that that's not my fucking thing. I never submit to journals. I do not do that. I started talking to them because they followed me. And then this fucking guy who I was talking to was like, oh, yeah, we would love to publish a follow-up to there's going to be a war in Montana, which was my piece that went like super viral. Yeah. Great. He keeps saying it over and over. And I'm like, okay, I'll send you a pitch. What he doesn't understand is in the magazine world, the way it works is they say interest, you send pitch, they approve the pitch, you write the piece, then they publish the piece. They, they edit it. Then they publish the piece. That's how it goes. When they approve the pitch, that's the, that's the commitment to publish. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it goes in the magazine world. That's yeah. what I've. That's how I've written my entire life. Besides the two little times when I submitted to uh, literary magazines, in which in which case then you write the whole thing and then you wait for it to be approved or denied, right? Yeah, yeah. This guy, I sent him a lengthy pitch which he approved. So then I busted my ass to meet this deadline, which is what you do. And then he was like, "Oh, it's not accepted," and I was like, "No, bro, this was a magazine." process you don't accept a pitch if you're then not going to accept the final thing that's not how it fucking goes does that make sense yeah no it it does and you're right yeah once they you know accept the pitch that's the commitment that's the commitment exactly unless there's like serious issues with what you wrote but i'm sure that's not the case no exactly unless what i wrote is like completely oh yeah no go for it dan um yeah okay I'm just going to keep ranting about fucking Apocalypse magazine. Uh, so, yeah. Uh, anyway, these this fucking guy approached me and like, or I approached, we just were talking on Twitter and he approved the pitch and then was like, oh, you, your, your, your post has not been submitted for, or not been approved for publication in Apocalypse magazine. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? I just spent the entire weekend, uh, trying to hit this deadline that you gave me that I got extended. And then it was like, Oh, it's not, it's not approved. And I was like, dude, you completely miss 
uh, understood what this process was and they call themselves a magazine. So it made me super mad. But I do think maybe it was just from lack of experience on their part. Uh, anyway, that's what happened with Apocalypse Magazine. We're waiting for Dan to return. So I'm just going to keep talking. Um, I think that Dan's podcast, which is called The, the New Right, is really fantastic. And it has some of the best people in our sphere in it. Um, that's how I found Astral, who is really great. He has a great episode with them just about the world of arts and literature and, and stuff like that. Um, and the major topic of discussion that I think that comes up on their show is whether like the role of art um, because these guys are very involved in creation of art. They both are novelists and they're both fiction writers. And so we talk a whole lot about whether art can be basically pure in our current world. And um I think that the question is, can, is, is writing art, is creating art for the purpose of dissidence, is that sort of a misguided goal? Like when, when we're creating, as you said, our, is our sphere and you talk about this a lot on new right is our sphere basically are we just creating reactionary art or, or what is what we doing just as bad like you know like all yeah. these celeste Ng, or like whoever <laughs> these fucking people are you know these these awful uh auto fiction writers who write these you know some of these writers are very talented but just the shit they write these mainstream writers is just so boring and yeah. uh you know, obviously politically slanted. So when we're creating our art, and this goes, this will get into the discussion of satire. When we're creating our art, you know, the, the, much has been said on our side about people who hate allegorical novels. You know, yeah. I, I find it hilarious when people say, oh, I, I hate allegorical novels, yet that's literally everything anybody writes is allegorical novels. It's impossible not to do that. Yeah. So I guess the question is, why are we any better than the shitty woke mainstream lit world if we're also writing stuff that is to forward our own political beliefs? Well, two things there. I would say the um, the most important thing is good art must be honest. It must be not driven by a political agenda. And so I think Lomez put this forth, other people have as well. Well, we're in our sphere, what I think we're ideally trying to do, hopefully trying to do, certainly this is what I support and, uh, you know, uh, attempt to promulgate is um, you have right wing artists making art. You don't have artists making right wing art. 
So like you just have me sitting down writing a novel. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a little uh, trad or fashy or whatever, just because that's who I am. And it's going to be a commentary on that, a commentary on like my values and that how they kind of clash or collide with the worlds like you. What we want to do is we want to and, and crucially right now, this is the reason why, like at this party tonight for Terror House, lots of people will be there. I don't think all of them are, uh, you know, very right wing necessarily. It's just become like, like I said, with my girlfriend's friends, they want to come. They want to come because this is cool. And this is cool because this is where the real art is happening. And why is the real art happening here? It's because we are not in our movement or whatever, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to say what this thing is. We're not censoring art. In the mainstream, art is heavily censored. You, there are things you can't say because they're unwoke. There are things you can't say because they're not politically correct. And that produces art that is cocked. That produces art that is lacks virility, lacks vitality. If you want real art, real art that is like, you know, big dick art, you have to go to a place where, you know, there are, are no rules hemming people in. Like literally, I mean, I I bet uh, Terror House would have published me even if I had stuff in there that, uh, you know, is very, uh, very offensive. And, you know, Neckmaker is offensive, but it could have been worse. Uh, I don't and, think it's very uh, offensive, to be honest. I, I don't think it's oh, like thank an you. offensive. Thank you. No, I, I yeah. Because, so this goes into our, let's like, okay, let's just dive into the book a little bit for real. Because okay. we're here well, anyway. Just one, one thing, I just yeah, wanted yeah. to add one additional point. So that's why I think the art in our scene is like better than the stuff that's made in the mainstream because it's uncensored. But uh, then also, you know, when it comes to like, well, why are we allowed to do propaganda? My number one thing is we're not doing propaganda. But my number two thing would be to the extent there are some people in our sphere who are doing propaganda, if their propaganda is to return America to like the uh, valorization of the traditional family, that's actually good. <laughs> so I'll I'll stand behind propaganda that like supports the vision of you know society that's good. It's like it's their propaganda is about you know uh, destroying the family basically, yeah. and that's bad. So yeah, that's that's the worst. You know, it's interesting. I feel like <clears throat> there's a lot of things to parse here. It's like, <clears throat> on the one hand, I completely agree that the, like, look what happened in, in Nazi Germany, right? They racialized all of our, or in communist Russia. When a regime becomes really, really powerful and they start to crack down on, everybody should really see this movie Tar, because that's like literally what that movie is about. Um. When you start to racialize art, it destroys, obviously, the art itself, because then the art stops being about anything besides the message of the regime. And look what happened in Nazi Germany. They did that. They racialized all art. And then they held the, the degenerate art show. And there was a line, you know, around the block for the degenerate art show, because that's <laughs> what everybody actually wanted to see, you know, and then that would yeah. it was that's what would happen now. If you had a right wing art exhibit it would sell out in five seconds. You would never, that happened in London. They, and they had to like shut it down a few years ago. <laughs> they have like a, 
you know, like frog Twitter memes art yeah, show. Yeah. And it was the most popular show like ever. And then they had to shut it down for obvious reasons. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but the part I'll disagree with is I don't think that that's happening in a vacuum. I, I don't think that it's just like their side is corrupt and our side is not. And therefore we're going to make better art. I think that we are reacting to them. And I think that in reacting to them, we are telling the truth, right? We're fighting for the truth, but I don't think we're pure. I, I don't I don't think the stuff we're making is just this pure, beautiful, objective. And I, and I worry because I don't want to like, I don't want to like have to be held to that standard. You know, yeah. like, I don't want them to say, well, you said your art is pure. Then well, how come everything you're talking about uh, happens to forward your your belief system? You know, <laughs> I'm going to be I'm like, no, you know what? I am here to fucking forward a belief system. Like, that's what I personally am doing. I think somebody like Delicious Tacos, I don't think that's what he's doing. The Tacos yeah. is here genuinely to tell the truth. He does not give a fuck about forwarding any position, you know? Yeah. Whereas me, I am here to fight. Like that's what that's why that's what keeps me up at night. Like I want to fight this fucking horrible evil that's in the world. Like that's why I'm yeah. doing what I'm doing. So where where do you think you stand on that? Like is is Nutcranker, which is a work of satire. So and the, the thing being satirized is a guy named Spencer Grunhauer, who is a very Ignatius J. Riley type character uh, from Confeder Confederacy of Dunces. He's a dunce, but he's like a right wing dunce. And uh, he has this incredible inner monologue going on. You've talked a lot about finding the voice of Spencer, which I think you really, you get that right away. <laughs> really, you've learned to put yourself in this mind space. Maybe it's yeah. you. Maybe it's actually you're, <laughs> you didn't even need to. And uh the first like three quarters of the book is really just immersing yourself in that basically. And, and the, the beauty of it, the, the great tension comes from what's happening in the real world versus what's happening in Spencer's mind. So he has this inner monologue and then outwardly, he's kind of this weak, you know, confused character <laughs> who's, who's never saying, or, you know, there's a great barrier between like what he's thinking and what he's doing, which I think we all face. Um, so uh, it's a satire, but you are making fun of ostensibly a guy on, you know, in quotes, our side. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I mean, what I would say to that is basically, I think one of your earlier points there was kind of like, is this a uh, a work to advance an agenda or is this just a, a, a pure work of art? And I would say I would lean toward pure work of art in the sense that like whatever agenda someone believes Nutcranker advances, it's just like the, it's just my natural sympathies. Yeah. And I did not like write this with an, a view toward, you know, really doing anything other than telling Spencer's story. And when it comes to like, is this a right wing book? I think it kind of is because even though I'm making fun of a Spurgy edgelord type, like number one in our tradition, we have, you know, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of self-deprecating humor. Like the, the, the online right is all about kind of poking fun at ourselves 
poking fun at, um, you know, where we're all neat, right? We're all incels. We're all, you know, whatever we've like, and, but we've, we wear it as like a badge of pride. And I think that is like, you know, so I, I think it's within the tradition of our people <laughs> to, uh, to uh, you know, make fun of ourselves. But beyond that, I think satire, the way it functions is such that if you want to have an effective satire, you have to satirize a character that you have sympathy for. So if I were to satirize a progressive, it would turn into something like an SNL skit. It might be funny, but I don't think it would have the juice to last 65,000 words. Yeah. 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 This is like Spencer. I like, I think, and you know, this is probably what made the, uh, the liberals in my writing class and any liberals who do read this uncomfortable, they, they'll love the part that someone on the right is getting made fun of, but what they won't love is that it's like clear that I don't hate him. It's clear that I even like him. And, and even in some sense, I'm rooting for him. And like, that is, you know, but that is what satire is supposed to be. You're supposed to have a kind of affection for your characters that you're satirizing. Otherwise, it's it's something less. It's not really satire. Right. So I uh, heard you say that on The Prudentialist, which was a and at first I didn't fully understand what you meant in terms of the Saturday Night Live thing. And then I thought about it and that, and I completely get what you're saying now. I, I think what you're saying is like. So look at a movie, for example, a satirical movie like Anchorman. Yeah. Like Anchorman is a satire, right? Yeah. And it's obviously making fun of uh, Ron Burgundy. But it also like he's the butt of the joke, but it's also you love him. Like he also like, like he's the it's like a reverse, like the world is the straight man and he's the joke. But in a way, he's living this like id that we all kind of relate to and the world, it almost like he's the obviously absurd one, but the fact that the world acts that he's so absurd, in fact, the world becomes absurd because it's like, well, this guy's just out there saying what we all want to say, basically, right? I mean, he's saying the things that we are, uh, you know, or like Tommy Boy, you know, all those great comedies where you kind of have this ridiculous character, but you also love them. Yeah. Versus uh something like south park right or something like an snl skit making fun of george bush you know strategery whatever yeah those things those are more mockery so the the definition of satire is trenchant wit irony or sarcasm used to expose and discredit vice or folly or a literary work holding up human vices and follies to a ridicule or scorn right but i actually think those definitions are not really good because yeah, yeah. that more points to the SNL. I think type, so, yeah. Or the the short story of mine that you read. This is why I wanted to bring this up. I, I yeah. wrote this short story called The Flakes. The Flakes is a scornful depiction of yeah. people that I hate. <laughs> you know Very I mean? good, though. Very well written. And uh, I think there's more, more to it than like, I did get some sense of sympathy for the characters a little bit, or at least an understanding of their motivations. Right, right. Um, why well, the the only reason why I think it's good to talk about that is because I actually think you're right. I think that 
in short form, a meme, for example, you can be scornful and mocking. And that that's a good time for like scornful, like finger pointing uh, type of satire. But for a full novel, there has to be love there, which I think you've really achieved because I think, oh, um, you. you know, yeah. I, can we talk about the end? Uh, yeah, why not? I mean, like I've, I've withheld it from other pods, but it's okay. Like, yeah, let's do it. Okay. So the end is the only part where I feel like, so, you know, where I thought it was going, it's such a genius turn with the Nutcranker part. So just spoiler alert, spoiler alert, uh, a bunch of things happen. And then he ends up losing his basically manifesto. we think we're headed towards which is really funny because your co-host matt pegas uh wrote a book called dragon day all culminating in basically a large act of dissident violence right yeah and you kind of think that's where this is headed too it's like going towards that which is crucially his girlfriend who he was trying to induct into the ways of patriarchy by uh, erotic instruction he meets her through a bdsm site he thinks he's going to, you know, make her submit to patriarchy through sexual appeal, but she uh, she leaves him for another guy, and he loses his Nutcranker account, which is where he's publishing his treatise, his manifesto, uh, on the comment section of this Nutcranker porn site. Well, so he loses- well, well yeah. 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 No, no. But he has right. like a manifesto that he's working on, which he's calling the project the entire time. And he saves it on some other site called Three Chain. Yeah. Uh, and it disappears somehow. So then he turns to basically blogging on Pornhub. <laughs> which is, is that real? Does Pornhub really have like a. Well, I mean, they have comments under the video. So I, <laughs> it's like he's essentially like commenting under like, you know, uh, yeah big suck fest cocky, <laughs> whatever and he's just like has this like treatises about the equitable distribution of wives or something and so the other oh, like man. you know the commenters are like dude what are you doing <laughs> <laughs> this is messed up <laughs> i mean it's just such a, a a hilarious idea to imagine you know the next industrial society in its future written like as a porn hub comment you know because that's yeah. the only place that he can like Find that he can post people. anymore yeah yeah that's just so good so i thought like that's where it, i thought it was gonna all go because it's also called nutcranker so once we get to the nutcranker i thought we were gonna stay there for a while and i'm not saying we should have i just thought that um but then we kind of uh you know the the book starts in prison so we know we're gonna end up back there uh and then we head to this like culminating uh as matt pegas says like this uh is it like an orgasm or whatever of, of a, a, a dissonant act? Um, but then after that, the, the denouement, the end, which kind of tags it all together. This is the one part that I wasn't sure if, are we still, what are we trying to exactly say about this character? Because he finds, I, I really don't want to totally spoil it, but I'll just say that he basically becomes a thought leader for the other side. He has this really right-wing monologue going in the the end, and then he kind of ends as a thought leader for the other side. And it's a little unclear whether he's continuing 
he's doing it uh, falsely or whether he really means it. So it's got almost a 1984 ending a little bit where it's like, uh, has he been flipped for real or is he still, does he still have any rebel left inside of him? So, so yeah, there is a, a culminating act of violence that he pussies out at at the last minute. Nevertheless, he is caught. He is nabbed on gun charges, goes to prison for like four or five years. And, Upon getting out of prison, he, um, I mean, this is going to spoil it, but, uh, you know, if you don't want to hear just, you know, turn it off right now and, you know, turn it on again in five minutes. But <laughs> he, um, he becomes a de-radicalization speaker. And so he goes on the speaking circuit, teaching like on, on podcasts and whatever, and teaching courses how to get young white men to de-radicalize and become, you know, less toxically racist and sexist. And this proves to be very profitable. He has like a hot girlfriend. He has a nice apartment. Things are going well. But uh, to your question, is he like, he, it seems like he still has the same beliefs. And of course, he still has the same beliefs. He's like, he hasn't changed at all. The only thing that changed is he realizes that this is his, uh, not only is this his last best option to have a good life, it's also a uh, better option. He should have he essentially in his mind, he's like, I should have done this all along. I should have sold out at the beginning. Why was I trying to save the historic West? It's doomed anyways. I might as well just, you know, collect my check. And so he's kind of like doing what I think a lot of normies who you know don't want to think about this stuff are doing. They're just like you know high you know high highly paid professional normies. They're like yeah, I'll collect my check and live a pretty decent life. And uh, yeah, of course everything is you know wrong and going to hell. But whatever. And so that's kind of the note that it ends on. But yeah, there is some ambiguity as to whether like has Spencer really. Uh, packed it all away has he really you know uh, has he really abandoned the historic west to its uh, you know desperate fate and um, I don't know actually I mean I could see a world where Spencer um, comes back and decides that he needs to uh, he needs to make one last grand effort to uh, save the historic west in Nutcranker 2 cranked one step further (laughs) could be Uh, crank it up cranked up um okay cool would not yeah i like that i mean it's it's the structure really kicks into me in that last like 33 25 percent of the novel then you really can see the structure you can see like where you've been taking us and setting it up. And I think that that's very well done. It's, it's like uh, it, but you get betrayed a little bit because the first it's setting up the voice for so long. And then once we get past the pussy March, which is hilarious, the, the uh, <laughs> women's March, the women's March, then you see like, Oh, okay. This is like structured. It is like a, it has a really clear arc and it has a really clear plot twists. And um. I think that that's great. You know, it's really, uh, yeah. I I, I want to go back to what you said about it being offensive. I don't think it's offensive, though. I I don't think any. Well, good, I don't think yeah. literally anybody would be offended by this book. 
I think the way Spencer refers to Crystal, his girlfriend, and his like various like uh, physical complaints about her body and her facial piercings, like it's hilarious. I love it, but um, I I do think that like it comes off as a little like, especially if you're a woman reading it, like oh yeah. god, this guy's really you know laying into his own girlfriend, and um, yeah. But I mean, I think like in terms of like super offensive like yeah we i kind of consciously stayed away from anything about race really and that's probably for the best like even uh i i don't you know matt is a uh, a very uh liberal-minded guy when it comes to publishing stuff if i were dropping n-bombs throughout yeah. this novel i don't know but uh but spencer does not he's uh you know Spencer toes the line when it comes to racial issues. <laughs> so how much like, yeah, so they, there's a lot of like, they meet on BDSM sites. How much of, how much personal research did you do into into that? Well, I do have a, you know, a good deal of, uh, you know, I, I put in the work, uh, Isaac. I, did you actually my, go to the Women's March? Uh, I mean, actually, I didn't go in, in DC, but like, after Trump was elected there, you know, there, there was a girl I was seeing at the time who is not based on Crystal in the novel. It's not like Crystal's an amalgam of people, but I did go to some type of march in New York City wow. and with people wearing pussy hats. And I was like, I was, um, you know, my uh, journey to the right was really kind of more uh, since 20. I mean, I, I always had right wing sympathies but it was more since 2020. I saw the reaction to Trump that kind of red pilled me. Frankly, it was more uh, just doing, you know, reading Charles Murray, doing my research. And that was essentially like, once I realized what, once I took the red pills and that was probably like around, uh, oh, well not 20, 2016 was the woman's March. So that was 2016. Took those like particular red pills, I guess around 2018 or so. And so by the time 2020 rolled around, you know, the second time around, I was, yeah, I was fully red-pilled by then. Right. So, so you kind of, this comes from a little bit of personal experience. Uh, yeah. The BDSM stuff, like, yeah, no, I, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I myself <laughs> have uh, had some, uh, some experience. Oh, with, uh, okay. it's coming out. Know, <laughs> uh women i mean look, look I'm a man in new york city spent my 20s and 30s here there's a lot of uh women with interesting interests and uh you know frankly i'd say more than more than my own interest though like i can get into this stuff and you know gender I, look you know just just suffice to say there are a lot of women who you know, are into the Christian gray thing, into the being dominated and, and everything that that entails. And if you're a guy who's, you know, maybe good with words and, you know, good with uh, kind of like those how to push the right buttons. Yeah, it's it's kind of it, it's fun. And, you know, I think like, yeah, so I've, I've had some experience in this regard. Wow. So what is that like? What is that about? Why do they like that? I mean, I think well I've never one, like, like I know nothing about this at all like I've never you know I've been with my girlfriend for this whole phase of dating life so I have to live vicariously so number one like it's just in, in human nature and female nature to want to be dominated every mm -hmm. woman wants to be dominated so 
it's kind of like um, if you're a liberal woman, a progressive woman, this is a way to actually get that without breaking uh, kayfabe, <laughs> as it were, as a progressive. <laughs> it's like, well, I'm still a progressive. I just have this deviant desire to be overpowered by a man. Kayfabe is the word that and... means the uh, the willing suspension of disbelief in like watching professional wrestling, basically. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So like, I think especially, and it, it has been my experience that most of the women I had been in relationships with in a kind of BDSM context, they, uh, they were progressive or liberal women who um, wanted to be dominated. And, um, you know, they, um, I think, got a special uh, thrill or desire out of that, like, because it was something that was uh, verboten to them, like, right. uh, you know, they're, their whole political agenda is uh, men are always oppressing women. The patriarchy is the bane of all existence. So what, what for them is more number one, by their very nature, they want to submit to men just because that's female nature biologically. But beyond that, they have this whole schema set up in their head where this is wrong. This is whatever. So anything that is a taboo, become something that is even hotter yeah right so, so it's both natural and a taboo so it's like doubly yeah. doubly uh yeah and so yeah, like yeah. a lot of the guys on these sites you know it's just like you know there's like random guys trying to you know make it happen but like um you know they're you know frankly i'm like a good writer and i'm like an accomplished professional so it's it actually was not very difficult to just kind of like write a good profile and like write good messages and show up in person and be like oh yeah i am actually a lawyer i am actually and then kind of take it from there and one thing i will say i wound this down considerably when me too hit because uh, then suddenly, you know, there are a lot of uh, potential liabilities with, you know, yeah. having uh, having these types of interactions with people you don't know very well who are not your your girlfriend. And, and frankly, I wouldn't even be doing it today, even beyond me too, just because in my 20s, early 30s, I wasn't looking to settle down. These are not the type of women, not because they weren't attractive or whatever, but because of their political beliefs generally. Uh, these are not the type of women I would have settled down with. So yeah, now I'm, you know, not interested in this just because like I, I do still like to, yeah, have sex where I'm, you know, mostly dominant, not in a weird way, just in a normal way. <laughs> uh, but in, you know, I'm not looking to find a, a freak necessarily. Yeah. I, I have a girlfriend. <laughs> how did you meet the, how did you meet your existing girlfriend? Oh, that was just through Hinge. Oh, and that, that's an interesting story actually, because like dating in New York city, you know, to find someone who's down with uh, our political beliefs, that's not that easy and like, if you set like the dating app hinge and I did, I set it for conservative. So I would only be showing conservative women and they're all like, you know, posing with bass 
or like you know posing rifles <laughs> posing with a fish. They're posing with a like, fish. Yeah, but even yeah. in the even in New York City, because they're they just like I'm oh, from yeah. Tennessee, and I I, I yeah, that, they're like southern or like basically. Well, or like yeah, they're just from like South Jersey, or for they're from out on the island or Connecticut. They're from like the tri-state area, but they're not like city people. Yeah, and you yeah. know, ultimately, like, like you know, for better or worse, I am a bug man. I, you know, I'm a lawyer. I live in New York City. I like, and I need, I can't, I can't You're date not a woman. A bug man. Well, well, you know what I mean. Like, I have a bug man lifestyle. <laughs> yeah, I like, yeah. You, know, you have a bug man lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. Like, if, you know, I can't date a woman who's, you know, more masculine than I am. No, yeah. I don't want to do that. I don't want to date a woman who's like a big, you know, oh, a big fisherman and like hunter and be like, I, I need to be the more masculine one. So, and, and also just like, a, you know, it's different cultures. So like what I did was I realized that looking, setting the filter for conservative was not really going to work. So I set the filter for like moderate to liberal, whatever, but I put a little wait. Thing so time out, time out, time out. You're saying that the fish girls, the bass girls, were more masculine. Well, kind of, yeah. Like oh. I mean, or like maybe not more like literally masculine than me. I am a man. I'm stronger than them. Um, you know, hopefully. Yeah. So like, but in terms of like, what are they looking for? What's the what's the bass girl looking for? The bass girl is looking for like a guy who drives a truck who's like you know yeah. who's yeah. like Bubba, you know. Yeah. And right. like that's that's fine, you know that's great. She should find her Bubba, but yeah. that's yeah. not going to be me. Right. So like, <laughs> right. yeah. Right. Right. So yeah. what I did was I dropped in my profile a, a little hint like. I uh Red Scare is my favorite podcast. Uh, I said something like go. that. Okay. And so I have interactions basically with the girl I'm currently seeing, my girlfriend. She responded to that and was like, Oh, I love Red Scare too. So we started uh, talking based on that. And then suddenly we're talking about HBD, we're talking about all the stuff. And I realized, like, yeah, she's essentially where uh, you know, simpatico yeah. intellectually. And uh yeah, so my uh, advice to fellow uh, based bros in big cities, uh, broach this topic on uh, the apps by saying you like Red Scare. And if a girl likes Red Scare, she's probably open to, um, you know, she has an open mind for right wing. Anna and Dasha, increasing the fuck rate episode at a time. Absolutely. I, Thank yeah. you, Anna. Thank you, Dasha. Yeah, I'm just really sad that you can tell that I, and as I've said before, it's like that podcast is careening, careening towards a cliff. You and think I, so? yeah, like I, I, I mean, even though on my pod, I say, or not on my pod, on my, in my profile, I said, it's my favorite podcast. I rarely, if ever listen to it. No, I, I never was just to a, it. yeah, that was just like a red herring. <laughs> uh, but yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, what, what's the deal with that? Man? Dash, yeah, I no, don't I don't know. know. I, I don't know. I don't listen to it either. Um, but they had logo on, by the way, my girlfriend, she listens to it. She told me they had logo on. Yeah. I don't really even know. I mean, like, okay. There's so many things we should like say to explain, but a red scare is a podcast with Anakachi and Dasha, whatever her last name is. Uh, she was on succession and they're like, uh, they have become to symbolize the dissident right in a way because they, um, you know, say gay and they 
make fun of things from sort of a right wing perspective. And they're kind of they remind me of like the kind of weird girls in the back of the class, like whispering to each other, you know, like in like sophomore year of high school, like the weird girls who are like kind of cute, but they're not popular. And they're willing yeah. to like say all the stuff that like nobody else is willing to say. Like that's kind of their vibe. Yeah. Um, I will say they are both kind of like, uh, and I mean, it sounds like I, I don't like it when guys are like, like, Oh, would, or, you know, would not bang or whatever, because like in almost every instance, it's like, yeah, you would stop. Of course lying. you would. Oh my it's God. Like, are you but kidding? I mean, especially in hot. their case. They're yes. Hot. They're, they're, they're hot. Shit. But I mean, I will say they have a kind of like unconventional hotness. Yeah, right. Like they're like they're, the hipsters. Yeah, they're like yeah. they have a distinct look. Right. And they're but really I like close. that. That's hotter. Yeah. That's like you I know. I wouldn't call them beautiful. I would call them hot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're exactly. both hot. And they're very good at taking pictures of themselves. Um, but yeah, I mean, but then yeah, you see Dasha in Succession, and it's like you're seeing somebody who's not Hollywood beautiful. You know, it's like you can tell immediately. Like she looks just more like a normal person. But that's Um, increasingly the vibe, right? Because like Shiv is not Hollywood beautiful. The uh, the red hair. She has more of a Hollywood look though to her in a way. But um, anyway, you you also have said an acronym in there called said HBD. So (laughs) can we talk about that? Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. So this is something that's important to you, I know, because you bring this up a lot, which is not a bad thing. I, but I know that this was a big red pilling thing for you. And I have only really a very basic understanding of this at all. So what is HBD and why is it so important? Uh, so HBD is human biodiversity. It essentially means that um, people from different population groups have uh, different genetic profiles. And if you come from a certain population group, you will uh, have a genetic profile that makes it X or Y likely or unlikely that you will be above a certain height, have a certain amount of muscle mass, have a certain, you know, uh, your facial features will look a certain way. And indeed, also, you will have uh, a certain uh, kind of uh, standard deviation of uh, intelligence quotient that you fall into. And uh, yeah, so essentially, uh, whites, blacks, Asians, and, um, you know, the the natives of uh, the North American continent, the natives of uh, Australia, they, they all have been separated by time and history and thus have uh, their own genetic profiles. And so a lot of the, you know, the current, um, the current thinking, of course, is that everyone is a blank slate and that any, you know, differences between groups are differences that are the result of, um, you know, if, if there are differences in outcomes and everyone is the same, then clearly there must be racism or something afoot. And so that that is the central operating assumption of our society and it's structured around that. And so all of the stuff that you see going on to um, uh, redress this is designed to redress that that fact. But that fact is um, just, it, it's just demonstrably untrue. Yeah, and I that, mean, yeah, so like if, if people, 
of different population groups, have different intelligence quotients, then um, it's, you know, in fact, uh, it's just pure ethno-narcissist discrimination to discriminate against whites in favor of blacks or to discriminate against Asians in favor of blacks or, or Native Americans. And, um, and this, this is the, the operating principle that, uh, you know, frankly, is causing the most trouble in society today. So it does a, did she actually know what that was? Uh, yeah, more or less. Like she yeah. like had an intuitive sense and I just kind of like <laughs> HBD pilled her a little bit more. <laughs> and, you know, I, I mean, like, I don't know how much we want to get into on this pod, but like, yeah, I mean, there are certain, you know, events, migrations that took place that just pretty much like kind of like, there's no way that, you know, if groups were separated by as many thousands of years that they were separated by in time, that they didn't develop their own distinct profiles. And yeah, so like it, she had an, I think everyone kind of has an inkling about this. They fear it's true. They suspect it's but true. Do they fear it's true? Like to me, it's just so obvious that I can't believe anybody thinks otherwise. Like even in something like Guns, Germs and Steel, right? Jared Diamond's very mainstream book about this topic. Isn't he saying people are different biologically or is he and it, the reasons for it are all these objective things like oh you can't you know you can't domesticate a zebra like when you can a horse like isn't he saying the same thing like do they really not think this well i think i don't know what jared diamond actually thinks yeah I don't know. but um <laughs> i think like if if you were to in public say well what does this mean he would claim that um you know biology stops at the neck and it doesn't impact intelligence so fucking insane that's so insane well it's because they're they're cucked you know they're cucked by this system and like if he starts saying that like oh that actually that's true he's gonna lose his job so where do you think they got this from where does this shit come from is is it a i have a theory but what do you where does this idea they have well, I mean, it, it really comes... That from, biology stops at the neck. I mean, there, there was an anthropologist in the 60s who wrote Man is the Measure. I think his name is Stephen Gould. He, uh, he kind of is one of the progenitors of the blank slate theory. But really, it comes <laughs> from... Fucking Stephen like, Gould. <laughs> it really it just comes from <laughs> our, our general way of uh or mo as a nation since the second world war was integration well and civil I'm, rights I'm, act right civil rights act is well no but also since the second world war like yeah. you know they, the army was integrated under truman and like that kind of really set the stage for you know it's like well you know there we didn't know a lot about genetics in those days and you know we, we probably did presume that the you know, a lot of it was environmental factors and that, you know, people, uh, you know, they just needed access to resources to, you know, improve their, uh, their lot in life. And so the, like the general gist of American life post-war was, um, uh, that discrimination needs to be redressed. And because, you know, and the underlying assumption is that all 
uh, human beings, despite their backgrounds, have the same potential for um, success. And that that has been like, even despite whatever, uh, you know, academic uh, stuff came out in the 70s to give kind of, you know, structure to this, this was the before the, the academic stuff comes before after the political decision is made. And the political decision was made right after the war, more or less that like, yeah, we're gonna and even before that, like even before, like, you know, frankly, the North wanted to do this for a long time that they fought the civil war over this. They, John Brown, he, the way he talked, like he, he sounds like any of these SJWs. It's just, <laughs> you, gotta, you gotta go chop and he literally go chopping people, you know, the chopping MAGA guys heads off or something like that, that. That would be the equivalent today. And so like you had like virulent SJWs in the, and okay, they had more to react against. Like slavery, of course, was a moral evil. That's, I don't think there's anyone who thinks otherwise. Uh, there, there are many people who think that, um, you know. There, no, there are people who think otherwise, definitely. There are people in our sphere who think otherwise. You know, they well, think, no, I, I think the people in our yeah. sphere who think otherwise yeah. think that they should have just never been brought over here, right? Well, no, but there yeah. are people who think that some groups should be slaves. I would say probably, I don't want to, there are big people in our sphere who think that, you know. I don't think I mean, but I think some people think that, you know, I mean, the thing is, like, if if they are like, well, they're also they're you know, they're you have to live with them. So, (laughs) that's you know, like, I think in general, like the kind of uh, the the if I'm to say like the kind of um, mainline thinking on slavery in the dissident right seems to be like you know, everything would have been a lot better if we never had any slaves. And then we wouldn't have this, you know, multicultural problem that we have today. <laughs> uh, and that like, right. yes, indeed, whites could have picked their own cotton. And yes, they, I'm sure they could have. Well, they did, right? I mean, they did in, in a lot of places for a long time. Yeah. Um, so uh, very interesting. This is a topic that I'm endlessly fascinated by. So do you think, just one more question on this, do you think that it's that genuinely, just objectively, some individuals just genetically, based on what group they're in, are not as likely a success? Or or do you think it's just, depending on the environment, you're going to be suited for certain types of success? And this is the environment that we happen to be in. Um, well, I mean, I think so. You, you get into kind of these kind of two things there. One, environment over long periods of time shapes genetics. Yes. yes. So if you live in uh, Germany from like you know two thousand BC to today. Like your experience there being cold and shit will shape your genetics because you will have to, the dumb ones die, the smarter ones who figure out how to stay warm, live, et cetera, et cetera. It selects for intelligence. And so like, yes, I do think that um, environment plays a factor in determining genetics, but I do not really believe in epigenetics, which is that like, an environmental factor 
that, uh, or, or actually this is not epi, I'm not, that's a whole other thing. I'm not going to get into that. Environmental, you know, environmental impact. I do not believe that a, a the impact on a person's abilities based upon their environment and socioeconomic status is really statistically significant in maybe, and this is the, I think this is largely borne out by the data in the first few years of life, when your brain is being formed, you can get gypped out of your IQ. If you don't have the right nutrition, if you don't have the right, whatever, but that's about it. Yeah. It's like, it's basically your time in the womb yeah, if your mother's, you know, pounding vodka while you're, you know, yeah, you you might lose some IQ points if you're, and in your first like two or three years of life, there's the potential that you, uh, you get messed up by, you know, not having the right nutrition, not having the right, you know, even love even. Uh, but after that, you know, your course is basically set. You have the DNA you have, it will, you know, manifest as it manifests and yes, it is true, of course, that society will reward different things. If this were hunter-gatherer times, I don't know about you, Isaac, but like my ability to sit down and draft legal agreements wouldn't be very valuable. <laughs> exactly. I, I probably like more high status guys would be the guys who could run more quickly than I can and be better at like wrestling wolves. Yeah. And that's, you know, I would get wrecked by a wolf. Let me tell you. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no, I mean, I think, yeah, society does decide like who is, but that being said, high cognitive ability is always helpful yeah it like you, you know regardless like maybe if you live in a hunter-gatherer society it's more helpful to be fast and strong but you also have to outwit these animals you have oh. to you know you have oh, to i say this about wild. professional basketball players all the time it's like people are like oh it's just physical it's like no man those guys are they have to have incredible mental yeah ability in so many different ways maybe not even just cognitive but they have to to navigate that whole trap you know is really hard and so many people get you know knocked out i what i would say is it's it is progressive ethno narcissism to think that the iq test is actually the uh that we've figured out the actual way to determine how smart somebody is. It's like, it's just a fucking test. It's just a yeah. test like any other fucking test. It tests something for sure. And there are correlations with that test for success. It's not a perfect correlation at all, you know? Yeah. But it, it's just a fucking test. And it's made by a bunch of white people. So the fact that like white people who are progressive are so... They, they delude themselves to think that, oh, no, this test is so perfect that if yeah. black people do worse on it, it means that they're like fundamentally deficient is fucking insanity on that on their part. It's like, yeah, black people do less well on IQ tests. Big fucking deal. Like, you know, it's not the end of the fucking world. You know what I mean? Like we happen yeah. to live in a in a situation to say that by to then try and handicap your ideology by saying that oh well but intelligence stops at the at the neck is just so fucking crazy you know i mean it's just like just let the truth be the truth which is that some groups are good at some shit some groups are good at other shit it's just the fucking way it is you know and i think yeah. that it's a massive misunderstanding of all men are created equal 
to think that all men are created equal means that all men are born with exactly equal traits. Like, obviously, that's fucking nuts. Yeah. You know, like, who who actually, like, to me, people, when I say, oh, I'm not a racist, people get all mad. I'm like, I never for one second thought that black people weren't as good. Like, I never thought that every black person, the only reason they do bad on, on IQ tests is because of racism. I never I, I don't yeah. even like I never thought that for one fucking second. So it's just so weird to me that anyone believes that. Yeah, I mean, I think that is unfortunately just a pill that uh, virtually none of them are going to be able to swallow. And I think so what crazy. you just espoused is kind of the Sam Harris idea, which is like, it shouldn't matter, you know, like everyone will achieve what they achieve. Everyone's an individual. And okay, so it just so happens that uh, a lot of the black individuals will be underachieving vis-a-vis -vis the white individuals, but that's just the way things work. We're all individuals, right? No, that's, that's <laughs> I mean, like, obviously you're going to have what we have today and you're, it's just, it's a, it's an intractable problem because you're not going to have, um, you know, blacks and Hispanics and, you know, very native natives. You're, you're, you're not going to have them like one day be like, Oh yeah. You know, we, we admit that HPD is a thing. And this is, you know, of course, you know, fewer of us are going to be doctors and lawyers because, you know, they're more cognitively demanding fields and we can't, you know, hack it. It's just that, I mean, that's going to be like that, you know, is the truth. Yeah. But that is something that's, they're, they're just not going to say, like, I, I would be, if, if that were me, I would be very, you know, no, I think I would actually embrace the truth because that's just who I am. Well, but like, yeah, but you know, that's a hard pill to swallow <laughs> and that's a hard pill for whites to swallow as well. It's much easier to just keep on doing what we're doing, which is to say that like, it's all caused by racism. And we have to keep, and this is an industry too, the anti-racism industry. It props up all these charlatans. Oh, yeah. yeah. So Gravy more, Gravy more anti-racism, more, yeah. you know, whatever. And, you know, this, I don't see this going anywhere anytime soon. We're, uh, we're locked on the, uh, we're locked on the, the anti, the CRT train going off a cliff. Yeah. I mean, it's tough. You know, it's it's like, uh, right. It's an intractable problem. You're completely right. How do you get out of something like this? And it seems impossible, you know, seems like yeah. it, unless you'd have to like retreat, re reestablish the libertarian American principle in a really fundamental way, you know, that it's like exactly. you, are, you are free as an individual to pursue whatever uh you want um yeah. uh well maybe we should just wrap it up what do you think uh, uh okay i mean if uh minutes anyway yeah yeah uh well maybe just like uh this might be a couple of other topics okay all right on, so, yeah. yeah okay all right go for it all right i'll be right back dan is going to the bathroom so i hate editing so i'm just gonna talk through dan going to the bathroom um yeah, with this whole uh, the the HBD thing, it's just I, I remember once my cousin saying to me that, oh, you know, the reason that um, black SAT scores are less than white SAT scores was it's oh, it's all because of racism, which to me was just I couldn't actually believe that someone literally believed that. Like I, I was like, are you? I thought she was like joking. 
So I'm very surprised that people are actually sitting around thinking, oh, there's no gen genetic differences in the ability to take a test. Like, of course, there's genetic, there's genetic differences in literally everything. On an individual level, of course, there are there individuals that are um, uh, break the, the outliers, you know, that go against the trend line of what that group excels at and what that group is not as good at, of course. But to rob, you know, Nietzsche and others have said that one of the most beautiful things is the diversity of different peoples. That's one of the most godly, beautiful things on the earth. That some peoples are good at this, some peoples are bad at this, some peoples excel at this thing, some peoples don't at, the, at this thing. And to pretend that that's not rooted in genetics is fucking first insane, but it's also robbing the natural beauty of the differences that we have between us. And so it's like when I hear, I do believe all men are created equal, but I don't believe all men are created the same. You know, I believe that that we are created equal in the eyes of God or in the eyes of nature. We all uh, deserve uh, the same chance to uh, make the life that we see fit, right? Um, not that we're going to have the same fucking outcomes or that we're going to all be equally good at math. Fucking insanity. Anyway, all right, let's uh, wrap this up because I got to go to the gym at 10, 15. Uh <laughs> I haven't been drinking, and so it's like when I I, I stopped. Oh, nice, yeah. Yeah, I stopped drinking like a month ago, and I my allergies are like ten times worse because I think I'm oh shit being drunk all the time makes my allergies go away. Um, so I have to work out. Uh, anyway, okay, so yeah, anything else we want to cover here? So yeah, I know just uh, Nutcracker. It's yes. out uh, as of uh, yesterday, uh, November eleventh. You can buy it uh, on Amazon. You can buy it from Terror House directly. That's uh, Terror, just Google Terror House, Terror House Press. You'll get to their site and, uh, you know, search for Nutcranker. That's N-U-T-C-R-A-N-K-R, no E at the end. And, um, yeah, my uh, my Twitter is uh, uh, Baltic underscore Dan. And uh, yeah, I you know do some of my best writing on Twitter so. and the podcast and the podcast New Right. New right. We uh, Matt Pegas and I have been doing New Right for quite some time. We have a lot of great guests coming up. You need to uh, you need to tune in if you want to listen to us talk to Rag Nationalist Bennett's phylactery, uh, Phoebe, the organizer of the Devere Ball. Matt Thrax from the uh, literary magazine that Isaac does wow. not like. Oh, boo. <laughs> Don't listen to that one. And uh, yeah, so we, we have a, a stacked, uh, you know, holiday season coming up. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, please, please tune in. Some and, great prior uh, episodes also. What do you think is your best uh, ever episode? Do you have like a one in your head that you're like, oh, that was – I mean, this is a ridiculous question. I don't think I have a best episode. But is there one that stands out that people should go back and listen to from the catalog? So definitely check out our episode with the good old boys. I think that's a good one. We did a, a retrospective on Van Damme's movies with the guys from uh, Merrick and Bogby from the good old boys podcast. I think the episode between me and Matt – 
on the constellation of podcasting about confederacy of dunces oh that is I a good one that, yeah that's yeah. a really good one that that that's helped me one. like understand confederacy of the, the i i've actually never read confederacy of dunces despite having lived in new orleans for three years um <laughs> and uh yeah that really that's a really good one i i agree that's that, that's a really solid one because you love that book so much and so it's like oh really yeah cool to kind of see how that absolutely helps. Uh, another good one, uh, Entourage and the Golden Age of White Boy Summer. That's me and Matt again, kind of like talking about Entourage as a lens to view how America has changed from the late 2000s to today. That was a fun one. And like, honestly, some of our best episodes are just me and Matt. Uh, and yeah. hopefully soon, you know, we'll have as many people who want to tune in for just me and Matt as they do for Rag Nationalist who uh, we also had a very good episode with. So yeah, right. Right. the man. He's, he's not a literary figure, but so. Oh, well, he kind of is. He, uh, he publishes man's world. Yeah. Man's world's great. I've been in there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yeah, but that's not, it's not really literary. It's like, again, this is the difference. Everybody needs to be careful in our sphere about this. There is a magazine and then there's a literary journal. You have to fucking say which one you are apocalypse confidential you can't act as a, if you're a literary journal you take submissions it's long shit nobody reads it and you know it's a bunch of it, that's what it is if you're a magazine you're in the sphere and so passage prize that's a literary journal right yeah the, the, uh, i am 6 1776 american mind man's world cars and women those are magazines and in magazines True. Pitch your story, and if your story is accepted, it gets published in the fucking magazine outside of very rare circumstances, in which case, technically, you should get a kill fee, right? I am a fucking magazine writer. I'm not a goddamn fucking literary fiction submitter. So people need to understand that. These guys in our sphere, they're so excited. They don't understand, like, there's rules to this shit. It's not nom, dude. <laughs> um Cool, man. So let's just ask one more question. So what are you doing? You've actually done an incredible job of this. So what what secrets would you have to people? You've grown your Twitter account a lot. Thanks, man. So what secrets do you have to that? How's the book marketing going? And like, what would you, what advice would you give? So the advice I would give to someone just starting out is kind of, it's similar to the advice that uh, Delicious, someone, when I say someone just starting out, I mean, someone who wants to write literary fiction and get it read by our guys on the internet and uh so follow the advice that delicious tacos provided which is get famous for something else first if you get famous for something else first you'll have an audience and then you can pitch them your novel so i started new right i i had a blast with it i have a blast with it it's wonderful it's put me in touch with all these great people would put me in touch with you, with Rag Nationalist, with Gio Panachetti, with uh, Zero HP, with Delicious Tacos. It, uh, you know, is both a journalistic endeavor and, you know, frankly, has served me well in terms of networking. And uh, so, yeah, do something that people begin to know your name, hopefully important people. And, um, you know, when it comes to growing your Twitter account, tweet every day, tweet all day. How I much mean, DMing do you do? Uh, very little, actually. Like most of it, I just keep uh, on the, you know, like I'll retweet people's stuff. I'll be a reply guy. Like I only really DM people to like invite them on new ride. I, I don't start DMs really. 
but um yeah no i mean i'm in some gcs obviously and like so those are dms but you know in, in general i keep it on the timeline and that's the best for growing an audience too because they see you interacting people see that you have friends or whatever they want to but the most important stuff is just write number one find some way to get famous find some way to network with big accounts number two tweet a lot and post bangers tweet bangers if you can that will like every time i have a banger i get like 300 new followers <laughs> what makes a banger what's a banger hard to say exactly but it's something that's like politically relevant and funny yeah. or like relevant to the moment and funny like my my last big one uh god one of my okay one of my last big ones was something like historian uh 21 22 uh and then in like in quotation marks uh you know perhaps uh expectedly it was uh believed to it was uh in retrospect a an unstable situation to have soldiers on food stamps and people with six-figure email marketing jobs <laughs> and yeah and so that like that took off because uh, like it's broadly and it's funny but it's also politically trenchant yeah, and so yeah. something like that got like six thousand likes yeah. and like you know once you have that you get an extra 300 followers people take notice so you kind of oh, like wow, organically 300 through that that's fucking yeah yeah 200 300 it's just like I mean, and also it's just posting. Like it's, it's shit posting. Yeah, it's shit really posting. And yeah. yeah, and it's Pareto's principle: the higher your account gets, the more people follow you because they see you have a big account. Well, the way so that's just, not Pareto principle. That's a different thing. That's a different. Well, no, thing. I thought Pareto principle is like to the uh, if you already have a lot, you get more. No, that's network effects. Okay. Or, or there's very actually that's not even network effects. Pareto principle is eighty twenty, which is that. 20% or 80% of outcomes come from 20% of causes. Okay. So um, all right. So that's not Pareto's principle. No, that's, but in not, any that's case. not quite Pareto's principle. Yeah. It, that's like a different thing that you're saying. The more, of, the more, the bigger you are. What, what did you say? The bigger, the bigger you are, the easier it is to get followers. Yeah. 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 But um, uh, yeah, that being said, yeah. Get big. And once you're big, you can release a novel and people will take notice. So like yeah. I dropped this novel and, um, you know, find people to publish it who are good, like Terror House, have a hot fucking cover. Like this cover is of a, yeah, it's of a, uh, a girl, essentially Crystal from the novel. She's wearing like a negligee with a, uh, she's a little chubby with a uh, pussy hat on and so it, it invites like the male gaze but also it's like oh i guess this is going to be a send-up of progressives whatever it's something that like is is fun to look at gets a lot of retweets we actually got a retweet by bap happy about oh, that nice. one yeah, Dude, yeah that's huge when was that that was last night bap oh, retweeted BAP. nice yeah. job. thank you bap <laughs> butler uh hey. yeah that's great and, it's yeah, a great yeah. Book. It's a really good book, man. It's really uh it's like uh yeah, I feel like both that and Dragon Day, they're like cultural artifacts kind of, you know, they're Absolutely. they're actually really kind of similar, which I wish I yeah, we should have talked a little more about that. But but um I mean, they're totally different, but they're also in a way similar. Yeah, um, no. No, they definitely are. And everyone should read Dragon Day by 
not only not cranker but by dragon day my co-host mac pegas's book it is a page turner i read it in one sitting it's um it has something called the, the literary uh Falgaram, which is a a way that if you analyze the text you can figure out the penis size of the author yeah. so that is really cool like you're gonna want to read just how this works and uh yeah it's uh there's some wacky fun stuff in dragon day yeah wow um yeah no it is it's good that's a good one too uh yeah i I think this book is good for anybody who just is interested in the moment i think it has a lot of great insights and it's really fun and, and very funny astral said it was the funniest book he's ever read oh yeah great i yeah I don't know if that's in his uh, his blurb, but uh, yeah, that's wonderful. So Love do you have that. a number in your head of like how many you want to sell? Have you thought about that at all? I would consider, I mean, like I'm, you know, most of this will go to Matt given our, our royalties deal. But I just for me, like the amount of people I want holding copies of these books and reading them, I would consider 500 a big success. Oh, really? Oh, you'll hit that. You'll hit 500. We'll, we'll make well, great, sure. Great, yeah. We'll make yeah. sure you hit 500. Like um, 1,000, that'd be amazing. And uh, yeah, no, if it really catches on, you know, if we're talking like, you know, five or 10, that'd be amazing. And um, how many do you think BAP sold? God, I'm not I'm not very good at this because like I know that like in literary fiction they're lucky if they sell like frankly 500 to like a thousand a lot of these literary fiction guys are but like BAP has consistently been like you know selling a lot of these books online if I had to ballpark it and it'd just be a ballpark but like he must have sold somewhere between 20 and 40,000 I would think yeah I feel for some reason I have 60 in my head is like I feel like he's probably sold 60k okay yeah no I have no I mean that's enough to you know really you know he's made bank on it and that's great tacos I think tacos like makes on his books I want to say I don't know but I think he like makes the average of like a 30k salary a year basically from his books so whatever that yeah and i think it's pretty consistent for him yeah um and i mean like that goes to show you like tacos is one of the best-selling authors in our sphere yeah this is um you know right now at least this is not something you're going to get rich doing well you make a little money but like you know it's a labor of love the numbers are still unclear to me and exactly how exactly how the numbers all break down because some people make a shit ton of money you know like some of these boomercon people you know like buy was featured on bongino like that motherfucker is rich you know? yeah yeah he, he probably makes you know i'm mean, not that he, he has a couple books but just from his following he probably makes you know 100k a month i would guess Something yeah like yeah now but i mean again like boomercon so he has the yeah. system behind him right. he has yeah like yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so gonna be still small yeah like uh good old boys their patreon takes in i think like three or four thousand dollars a month and so yeah that works out to like what tacos is making a year per book and like 
contrast that, I mean, the thing is, the real thing is the jump between dissident right and mainstream. Yeah, that's, like, yeah, yeah. Anna, they make like, I guess, 1.2 to 1.5 million? million a year. Jeez. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, like, this from they Patreon are, people? Yeah, but they are, they're okay. the Overton window, right? Like, so yeah. they are like, they're inside the Overton window, but maybe they're the outside limit of it, but they're inside it. They're hot girls. And like, that's enough because they can grab that post left audience like me and Matt. Like, I mean, I don't know that like, you know, fr frankly, two guys are ever going to, unless we're doing a come town thing and we're not really doing that. Like, I don't know that we're going to grab those Anna numbers, but I do know that like having uh, like, I mean, literature honest, just never will be. Yeah. There. Yeah. The, the, the just audience won't. just isn't there. Yeah. yeah, so what we're really saying is uh, please come on the pod, Peter Thiel, and <laughs> uh, give us uh, yeah, some... Well, that's some what money. we're all hoping for. The entire economy is Thiel bucks. Um, well, that's why I feed it all into... I mean, this is all a giant business development scheme for my fucking, you know, marketing agency. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I do. You know, that's... I just try and convert whoever I can into a client, and that's how I survive. Yeah. Uh, that's good yeah. stuff well, yeah i mean i think we all want to kind of take our normie jobs and yeah. uh basify them like i want to take my lawyer job and i want based clients yeah, that's what it is. i want yeah i that, mean the problem is then it becomes like both a creative and business endeavor like i you know if i'm to start my own law firm like then you know like i already have a lot on my plate i i want to focus on my next novel not on well, and building. also that just is a shitty thing to do with law like law i feel like i learned that early enough and like when i moved here i was like to la at first i was like oh i'm gonna be an entertainment lawyer and then i realized actually being an entertainment lawyer would be worse than being a not entertainment lawyer because i would just be stuck as the shitty lawyer like it's yeah. only it's like worse you know like yeah, I, when i was working 72 and sunny basically as a entertainment lawyer and it was way more miserable because it was like all the creative people are over here and they yeah, would just yeah. be like, Isaac, you're the shitty lawyer. Fill out the form. And that was like driving me insane. So it's like, I feel yeah. like it's like better to be a different type of lawyer. Um, yeah. All right. Well, dude, thank you so much. Uh, this was great. Everybody. I'm Absolutely. Um, okay, cool. Cool, man. I'm going to stop recording. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was wonderful, man. You're the sure. best.